friendly, familiar faces, too. Now, turn with me, please, to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Very familiar passage, and I wonder this morning when Brother Higgins in his very good ministry mentioned a few things that some of the very things that I'm going to speak on were, were what he mentioned too. Other things are included in the other messages. It's nice when you get encouragement from other messages like that. Second Kings 2 and verse 1. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Now, there is some question whether that is the same Gilgal as the original one, the very familiar one. Uh, it's likely that it could very well be a different one, uh, a different location. But nevertheless, the name itself harkens back to the experience of Gilgal, where there was the cutting off or the rolling away of the reproach of the flesh and so on. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went. It's interesting that they contrast to the fifty, the captain and his fifty in chapter one. Here are fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off. And they too stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together, wrapped it together. And smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha. Notice it's at this point. It wasn't earlier. It wasn't when they first started walking. It was at the end of the walk, the conclusion of the walk. Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. <coughs> Excuse me. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. 
And he saw no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? We are well aware of the presidential election that's coming up. The candidates are making their cases, they're presenting their arguments, and so on. It's a country now that this country is preparing yet again for another transition of leadership, another change. I want you to notice that in this passage, that what we are looking at here is a transition time, a transition of testimony, a changing, as it were, as the old prophet now is going to go up and the younger prophet will now take his place and lead. When old prophets leave and young prophets lead. And that's what I want to look at in this passage because we are, ourselves, in assembly testimony at a period of transition. There are many younger ones. There are some of us that don't even know where we fit in. But there is that transition that as an older generation passes on, a younger generation is now taking up things. And while Elisha was responsible as he took up this mantle, it's interesting that we want to be careful of things that we do take up. And sometimes we're not all that careful about what we take up. And even sometimes we're better at discarding than taking up. But I want you to think of what was happening here. What was being experienced here? The transition of testimony. I want you to think of that first. The key to the nation's future lie in their past. In fact, there's, there's, there's an element even when Elijah is taken up. And Elisha sees this and he says, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. He's not really so much likely referring to, to the way that Elijah is taken up, but he's referring to Elijah himself. That he was the defender of the nation. That what he had done, Elijah, in the days of his testimony and power, albeit there was a difference in character between these two men, yet they still wanted the same thing. And I appreciated very much what our brother Higgins said earlier. He wanted, and they both wanted, a continuation of the ministry. That thus saith the Lord, that catchphrase that so characterized Elijah's ministry was now going to characterize Elisha's ministry. But there was going to be a transition. How was it going to be handed over? 
As I think of that, I, I am, and I know there are others here, and I'm just going to, before I preach, let me just plead. I, I think there are many of us, and, and we are concerned about how testimony, if the Lord be not come soon, will be handed on. What will be passed on? What will the next generation of people, how will they handle assembly testimony? What will happen? And I want to just take this passage at the close of this afternoon session and look at possibly some key elements that could help us in understanding that and maybe taking hold of that ourselves. First and Second Kings, just to set the background a little bit in this transition of testimony, First and Second Kings were originally meant to be one book. And yet they are divided. First Kings represents about one century of time. Second Kings represents about three centuries of time. Now, historically, these two books are now brought together just as these two men are brought together. And yet they, they do complement and contrast with one another. But here's the key. They never conflict with one another. And when there is a change of ministry, when there is a transition of testimony, it can be contrastive and it can be complementary, but it should never be conflictive or conflicting. It shouldn't be a tug of war. It shouldn't be that there are those that are intending on, on change and, and moving about in a different direction. And, and that's not what happened. And you can see that in, in Elisha and Elijah. There's many similarities between them. Even their names are, are, are very similar. I, there's a lot of times, I, just in preaching on them, you get tongue-tied. And you know, who was that? Was it Elijah? Was it Elisha? What happened to this person? It would be a wonderful thing if the transition of testimony were seamless. If it were handed on in a way that that younger cared about not only what an older generation had, but the truth of God that was embraced and held. And that's what I see in these two men. As far as the scene goes, well, there are three things that are in the background. Three things that are happening that God is vindicating not only Elijah as prophet, but he is vindicating Elisha as successor. And we're going to notice that, in fact, as we move through these books and look at them even further in, Lord willing, in future ministry. Conquest is behind this. Baal was the chief deity, the pagan deity. And in Baal, Baal was characterized as the rider of the storm. Isn't it interesting? He, he, he carried himself in the whirlwind. And so what does God use to take up Elijah? In contrast to that, in showing he has power over that, he takes up Elijah in the whirlwind. Baal was also, it's interesting that his opposition, his enemy, uh, opposing force was the river and the, and the streams and the seas. And yet, what does Elijah and Elisha both do as they smite the waters and they waters part at their command at the power of God? Showing once again the superiority, the sovereignty of Jehovah over all deities. These men were moving in the understanding, the conviction and the power that their God was supreme and sovereign. That there was no force on earth that could compare or could fight against him. I just wonder, just as an aside, do we, do we believe that? Or do we succumb sometimes to fatalism? Do we succumb sometimes to lack of numbers? Do we think there's strength in numbers? You know, when you come to the end of this passage, isn't it interesting that the sons of the prophets, they said, we have 50 strong men. We have 50 strong men. We'll find them. Let us send them out if something has happened to them. 
And yet they come up empty. You know why? They were trying, they were thinking that the strong men were able to secure something spiritual. And it couldn't be done. Physical strength, natural ability, will never be able to accomplish what only can be done spiritually. And Elijah told them, Elisha told them, he says, don't go. And they didn't listen. And they depended on natural strength. We need to be very careful of that. Whether it's education, whether it's finances, whether it's oratory, whatever it might be, whether it's popularity, the majority says, these men certainly understood what it was to be alone and yet what it was to stand for God. So there was the aspect of conquest. The aspect of chaos, too, was in the background because Ahab was on the throne with his lovely wife Jezebel. She must have been a sight to behold. All painted up, all decked out, and, and just, oh, there she was. The beauty queen of the Sidonians. And yet, as we think of this Ahab, it, it, it said very clearly that here was a man who had absolutely no regard, no respect for the heritage of the people of God, for the background, for their, their past history. You know how he displayed that? He would have done anything. He actually murdered a man to take his vineyard, Naboth. Here was a vineyard that was in the family. And according to Naboth, it meant nothing. And he would murder this man and besmirch his character just to take something. You see, the heritage meant nothing. Those were the days of Ahab. And in light of these days of conquest and chaos, God wanted the testimony to continue. The problem was that the people had lost vision of the heavenly throne and the authority of God. In fact, the days of the writing prophets, the writing prophets had virtually become ineffective to the masses for the most part. Alliances, idolatry, separation and distinction of the nation was lost as there was intermarriage as there was the bringing in of outside religious systems and the embracing of outside religious systems, they had lost their distinctiveness. And in so doing and in losing their separation, they had lost their power. But more than that, there was a blatant disregard for the Word of God. And that is key. Because the authority of the throne, not the throne of the king, but the throne of God, must be wed together with the authority of His Word. Those two things must go together. We dare not jettison or discard the truth of the Word of God. We cannot get on. We are fooling ourselves, really, if we think that, as we've been hearing, form will simply preserve us. If we think that simply because we, we, we're familiar with things. We need the power of God. And not only do we need the power of God, but that must be accomplished spiritually. And it is only done by devotion to His Word. In fact, these days had so collapsed the moral and the spiritual fiber of these people that when you come to Hezekiah's day, and he was a good king, it's actually going to take 16 days just to haul the rubbish out of the house of God. And when you come to Josiah's day, who was another good king. The, the word of God, there's not even one copy of the law to be found. And when one was, was discovered, <laughs> they were so unfamiliar with what they were even reading. Can I ask you a question? How familiar are you with the word of God? 
How dependent are you upon the Word of God? The assembly that you're a part of, how dependent is it upon the Word of God and the authority of God? Because the two go together. That is what's involved in this transition of testimony. So, let me look at the translation of Elijah now. We're moving on. When old prophets leave... Now, he was prepared for this moment. And not only was he prepared for this moment, but he was preparing Elisha for this moment. Now, something interesting. Elisha, you'll remember, was already designated to be the successor of Elijah back in 1 Kings 19. So that was really a given. So that when you come to chapter 2 of 2 Kings, and he wants this double portion, which we'll look at in in a short while... It was really something he was asking for, even though he was already designated the place of the firstborn son. But he recognized something deeper in this, and we're going to touch on that. But let me just point out a few, just a few things just prior to this moment when Elijah is going to be translated. Because there were moments we've been hearing about failures and letdowns, and who among us doesn't know what they are? I think of, when it comes to the translation of Elijah, I want you to think of the tree that preceded this moment. The tree that preceded this moment. There was a time when he actually wanted to die. You ever been there? You ever been there? I just want to go home. Home's pretty good. Heaven sounds pretty good, right? Heaven's great. And he says, I'm no better than my father's, just... Take me home. And under the juniper tree, you remember that lamentable conversation that he has with the Lord. You know, it's interesting. There are three periods of transition in in the Word of God. Key periods of transition. Moses with Joshua. Elijah with Elisha. And we've already been hearing, again, about Paul with Timothy. It's interesting that all three of those periods of transition also involve unique aspects of death. Because when you go to Moses and Joshua, you remember that Moses, he he really, because of his disobedience, he died and God buried him up on that mountain. And the way he died, God took his life. His natural force was not abated, nor was his eye dim. God took his life. He died when he had served his generation. He died by the will of God. But he died uniquely. And when you come to Elijah, well, he never died. (laughs) So that's something unique there. And when you come to Paul and Timothy in that transitional period, you remember a man who, well, believe what you will, but I kind of think that when he was caught up to the third heaven, there was an aspect there, possibly linking it with the stoning at Lystra. And a man who died saw things that it was unlawful for a man to utter and then came back. And so in these three transitional periods, you have unique aspects of, of deaths. Elijah wanted to die. But let me just point out this. Aren't you glad that God didn't grant him his request? Don't you think Elisha was glad that God didn't grant him his request? The the point is this. Tomorrows, our tomorrows, whether it's individually or in testimony, often depend on the actions of today. Our tomorrows often depend on on the actions of today. And so here he is, and he wants this, and God says, no, that's not, your, that's not the plan. Now you go and anoint Elisha. Now you do this. And for possibly 10, 20 years, he is now mentoring Elisha. He is teaching him, training him. And let me just say this. 
As older ones, if you want testimony to continue, it is vital that you train, teach, and mentor younger ones. That you pour into them, live before them by example. Teach them the Word of God. Set the tone in that assembly. Take them aside. Because if all our teaching and all our training is simply done in assembly meetings, there will be a tremendous void that will be left. It must be lived out before them. And that's exactly what Elijah did. But I want you to think about the tests that, were, that accompanied his translation. Three tests as he prepared Elisha for his translation. Now, some may just say, well, it was a matter of just him going from one place to the next. But I, I personally think that these were tests. You notice even the way he says it to him. He says, just, just wait here. Wait, wait here, Elisha. God has told me to go. Now, they go from Gilgal, and, and they go on then to Bethel, and then they go to Jericho, and then they cross over the Jordan. And in these change of locations, there are three tests. Three tests that are very, very important for the transition of testimony. I want you to think of the test of labor. The trip that they were going to make this day was about 30 to 35 miles. And they did it in one day. One day. It's pretty amazing because Elijah is a pretty old man. And Elisha is a younger man, but 30 to 35 miles. It's interesting, though, when we have now labor, he's going to give them the test of labor. Wait here. No, no, you're going to come. He's going to come. He says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. I'm going to follow you. You know how Elisha began following him? Let me just say this for younger ones. You want to do something for God? Everybody wants to preach. Everybody wants the public spot. Everybody, You know what he did? It says, and Elisha, go back to 1 Kings 19. Elisha ministered unto Elijah. You know how he began? Serving. Serving. You know where we all need to begin? Serving. Serving. What did the Lord Jesus say? I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to. He is the servant. I, I, I was appreciating that even just, just this morning. To think of one who is God. God, almighty, omnipotent, manifest in flesh. And he takes the place of a servant to serve. That is critical. It's key. That's how Elisha began. Is there a young man? You, you want to you do something for God? You, you, you want to serve. Serve God. Serve others. Be a servant. Test of labor. Next test, the test of loyalty. Elisha says again, stay here. Just stay here. Now, this, this test of loyalty is... Elisha could have just said, well, okay, you know, if you're going to go on, I'll just, I'll just wait here. If you're going to come back, what are you going to do? He didn't say that. He was loyal to his master, loyal to this older saint. There was an affection and an allegiance and a devotion to this dear, venerable mentor that he had. Loyalty. But Elijah, did you notice, Elijah didn't command him to stay there. Tarry, I pray thee. It was a suggestion. It wasn't a command. It wasn't a directive. My point is this. We are at our best for God. When we go above and beyond. Can I put it that way? When we serve out of love. When we serve out of loyalty. 
What did, what did Paul write to Philemon? He says, knowing that you will do also more than what I ask of you. Wouldn't that be a tremendous thing if the Lord Jesus knew that about each one of us? You will do more. You know what our problem is? We don't do what he asks of us. But to do more. What is it that the, that the apostle writes to the Philippians in chapter 1? That you may learn to discern or approve the things that are excellent, more excellent. We've often said this, and it's a very good thing to remember. Good is the enemy of the best. Good is the enemy of the best. And if we simply settle for just, well, I'll just do the minimum. Rather than looking for something that we can do. Looking for opportunity. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Here is now a test of loyalty. He says, Elisha, stay here. Elijah says, Elijah, Elijah says no. No, he says, I, I won't leave you. Loyalty. There's another test now, loneliness. Loneliness. Apart from the sons of the prophets that we see here, this guild of men that Elijah possibly created and, and banded together, the prophets of these days had very little companionship. Very little companionship. The catchphrase, thus saith the Lord, seems to have drawn a box of isolation and separation around such people. And there were those that they really didn't want to enter into that. Thus saith the Lord. Well, I don't really think that's important. And yet that was the prophet's watchword. He is telling Elisha now as he calls him, it's going to be days of loneliness. And they were days of loneliness. Maybe I'm speaking to someone on the oversight here. And it will be a lonely path to have to make a stand. And as this, you group of men, you, it's not going to be a popular decision. Thus saith the Lord. Maybe I'm talking to a sister here. And you don't have it easy. Maybe in school. Maybe at the workplace. And whether it is by your appearance, by your deportment, by your godliness. You know, you don't have it easy. You're not like the other women. And it might be pretty lonely, but you remember this. You have his approval. You have his approval. Elijah is giving him the test of loneliness. Let me talk about very quickly the, the motivation of Elisha, because I want to touch on now both him being taken away and what was motivating Elisha. I want to notice their departure from one another. Their departure from one another. Elijah's ascension would prove a benefit and a blessing to both men. To both men. It would prove a benefit and a blessing to Elijah because he's going to go to heaven. And it's going to prove a benefit and a blessing to Elisha because he's going to receive a double portion. And it's actually going to ripple out beyond that because it's going to prove a benefit and a blessing to the sons of the prophets because they're going to receive the benefit of a prophet that has double the portion. And they're going to be blessed. It's very similar, isn't it, to when the Lord Jesus ascended. Elijah is typical of that. And as the Lord Jesus was contemplating, now returning back and in that upper room ministry, He told those disciples, it is needful for you. It's needful for you that I go away. Greater works will you do. And that has rippled out today to the 21st century. That includes you. That includes me. I know it was spoken of, of the apostles. But we are included beyond that as well, to a degree. 
their departure from one another. Tremendously important times. And again, I mentioned three groups of people. You know what is interesting? I've appreciated this. There are similarities between when Paul and Timothy now were in that transition. When the testimony now was going to be handed over. And Paul writes to Timothy in his second epistle. And he says, The same commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In fact, if you go to 2 Timothy, you will be able to trace these four locations. You will be able to go to Gilgal. You will be able to go to Bethel. You'll be able to go to Jericho and you'll be able to go to Jordan. In fact, that's included. It's very similar. Very similar. When you go to 2 Timothy, you remember, it's Paul's last epistle, right? He's going to be executed. He's going to go. What does he say? The time of my departure is at hand. And so, in the beginning of the... What happened at Gilgal? You remember at Gilgal, when the nation crossed over, and just before they crossed over, they were... Well, all the, the men of war died, right? That generation had died in the wilderness. A new generation had risen up. And they had to now be prepared as warriors. So what does Paul write now to Timothy? Thou therefore, my son, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Prepare for battle, Timothy. He's telling him, from a child you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise. You're a new generation, Timothy. You're rising up. Now he says, prepare for battle. And then, as they go from Gilgal now, we go to Bethel. And what was Bethel? Bethel was house of God, right? And you remember what was happening at this time. That Jeroboam had established the calf, right? In Dan and Bethel. That false idolatrous worship system. And Bethel means house of God. He had actually corrupted house of God. Bethel. What does Paul write? How does Paul bring us to Bethel? He reminds us of a great house. A great house. There could be no greater house than house of God. In a great house, he says, there are vessels unto honor and to dishonor. And he's telling us, he's reminding Timothy about using it as an example of a great house. Then we go on to Jericho. What was Jericho? Well, Jericho was the place, you remember, where when they crossed over, those massive walls impeded their progress. Stopped them. Spiritual powers. The world pictured there. And it's spiritually providing a wall against the progress of the people of God. What does Paul write to Timothy concerning perilous days and the perilous times shall come? He says, men shall be this, men shall be that. And then he says, like Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, thee, thee shall proceed no further. They will be stopped. You will be able to go on. He's reminding him of Jericho. And then what about Jordan? Jordan, the place of death. He says, I am ready to depart. The time of my departure is at hand. And you know what I think is very significant? With a, with a tapping touch to the whole similarity, he reminds Timothy at the very end of that letter, oh, and the cloak. Bring the cloak. And we're reminded of the mantle that was passed on. A lot of similarities. What did both of these men care about? What was their consuming desire, their devotion? That testimony be transitioned in a way that was honoring Christ, that honored the Word of God. What was Elijah concerned about? That the testimony be handed on, that nothing be changed, that everything be the same. You know, I heard a, a, a really homey example, illustration of this. 
And I was just thinking about this in relation to our handling of assembly testimony. Our handling of testimony in relation to the house of God, to the, the local assembly. What changes do you want to come in? What changes are individuals pushing? What do they want? How do they want to change things? It's interesting to me when Elijah is taken up. Did you hear the cry of Elisha? He says, my father, my father. You know what there was in that cry? Affection. Respect for the older prophet, for what he believed, for who he was. You know, Elisha didn't say, as he turned to the sons of the prophets, the old man's gone now. This is what we've been waiting for. <laughs> now that he's gone, we're going to do things right, right? Elijah, his, he was just old, too old-fashioned, you know? And, and now that he's gone, we'll be able to really roll things out. Is that what he said? No, not at all. I, I've actually heard conversations where people have said, younger men have said, when that older generation dies, things will change. And they want them to change. How foreign to the language of an Elisha to an Elijah. How foreign to this respect. The illustration I heard was this. Say you have a friend, a good friend. And you are in danger of getting hit by a car. And that car is coming down the road and your friend jumps in front of that car and pushes you out of the way. And he dies saving your life. That would mean so much to you, wouldn't it? Your friend loved you enough to do that. Now you hear a conversation and there are others and they're talking about this friend of yours that died. That did that for you. And you know your friend, well, he was, he was six foot two, say, right? And your friend, the other people are talking and you overhear them and they say, yeah, we remember him. He was, uh, he was five foot nine. Five foot nine. You say, no, 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 that's not the same person. No, 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 no. He wasn't five foot nine. He was six foot two. And then they say, oh yeah, yeah. He had uh, he had blonde hair. No, no, no. He had brown hair. He had brown hair. You would be very quick and careful, right, to correct that. You, in your mind, wouldn't want anything to change what you know and love of that man who died for you. And in the same way, we should hold tenaciously. To the word of Christ, not desiring to change, but to keep his word. Because he's the man that died for us. He's the Lord, the Savior that gave himself for us. And in our minds, in our hearts, and more importantly, in the written record, we don't have to go by memory. We can go by what the word of God says. Honoring him. Let me think lastly of their desire to one another. I had their departure from one another. But I want you to think of their desire to one another. Now, Elijah's leaving. He turns. Did you notice now? I thought it was very significant. He doesn't say at the start of the journey as they're making their way. Listen, um, Elisha, I, I'm going to give you a request. Just stay with me. And when we're all done, I'll, uh, I'll uh, give you your request. No, he didn't say that. In fact, see, Elisha never even knew he was going to ask this question. Until the very end. Now, Elisha knew he was going. 
But he didn't know when. He didn't know when. So the point is this. He watched him carefully, didn't he? Every step. He didn't want to miss a beat. And he's waiting. And he's looking. Are we in that mode? Is this how we follow? We, we, we keep our eyes on the one, our Lord, just like Elisha with his master. And so finally he turns. And it says, they're the sons of the prophets. They're over there. He asks Elisha, what, will, what should I do for you? He asks him. And he asks him face to face. Face to face. Personally. Individually. Here's my point. Elijah delighted to bless this faithful man. But he was going to do it face to face. He was going to do it personally. Listen, you want to know the blessing of God? It has to be in the measure that you know Him personally. It has to be in the measure that you and I follow Him closely. If we want to know that. The sons of the prophets, we need to ask ourselves, are, are we like those that are viewing afar off on the hill? Or are we like those who have crossed over? Crossed over the Jordan. You see, even that in itself. They crossed over the Jordan. And the sons of the prophets are over there. You know what that tells me? There was a deeper, more intimate experience that Elisha shared with Elijah as they crossed over the, the Jordan. If you and I... You know what? The, the, the truth is this. Collective testimony, while it is absolutely important and essential, yet the truth is this so often that there are the ones and the twos and the pockets and the remnants. And if someone, a man or a woman or a young person, could get a hold of the truth of God in your own soul, we can't preach it into you. It only comes by face to face before the Savior in His presence. And we can pray about it and we can be burdened about it. But it's up to you. And each one in this audience is responsible before God to take that place. But you know what the problem is? Some will stay on the hill. They'll be content with being afar off and viewing it all. And others will say, I want to cross that Jordan. I want the deeper, more intimate experiences. I want that intimacy with, with my Lord. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. And so he says, ask of me. And he asks for a double portion. Now that double portion, it doesn't mean, as we were hearing earlier, that he wants to become two times greater. Even though he did twice as many miracles as Elijah. But that's not the meaning. The book of Kings, First and Second Kings has a very strong link with the covenant theology of the book of Deuteronomy. Whether it was the wording to the king on the throne in Deuteronomy and their admonitions, whatever it was, but they, they connect themselves. And so in this, what Elisha is doing is he's hearkening back to the truth of Deuteronomy 21 and the, the portion, the double portion of the firstborn son. You know what he's saying? Just what we heard again, and it, you know, it's worth repeating. He's saying to Elijah, I want to continue on in the legacy that you have begun. I want to take that place as firstborn son. I want to carry on the family name, except the family name isn't just Elijah or Elisha, it's Jehovah. And isn't it significant that the very name of God was embedded in both those men's names? That what they wanted to carry on was not tradition, it was truth. It was the very truth of God. Thus saith the Lord. And so Elijah says to him this, with the understanding that an appreciation, you want to carry this on? 
You want to care? And let me just say one more thing. In fact, a quote just comes into my mind by C.E. McCartney. He, he said this. That was very, very wise. He said, preachers are not called upon to be inventors or discoverers or explorers. We are called upon to be heralds. Heralding the truth of what is in the Word of God. Not newfangled things, not new inventions, not what we want, the Word of God. Preach the Word. Paul said to Timothy, preach the Word. And how that is so telling, even in our gospel preaching. We've been hearing, and rightly so, about the essential, the, the, the importance of personal work in the gospel. But that as well is balanced with the public proclamation and the heralding forth, the preaching of the Word of God. And it's not story time. And it's not capitalizing on some news clip or some soundbite and expanding an entire message on that. It's, you, we could do nothing better than preach the Word. To lay out that message, to preach the Word. That's what Paul had admonished Timothy. He says, well, Elijah says to Elisha, you've asked a hard thing. You've asked a hard thing. Now, there's three possible meanings in that. Three. At least three. Maybe you can get one more. The first thing is that he's telling him, Elisha, it's not mine to give. It comes from God. You're asking me. It's a hard thing. I, I can't guarantee that. The second thing he's telling him is it's a hard thing because, well, first of all, you can't really give more than what you have. So Elisha's asking him for a double portion. How can I give more than what I have? But the third thing I have wondered is this. Could it very possibly mean this? You've asked for a hard thing. And you don't know what that will involve. If you take my mantle, if you take that place, if you carry on this legacy, you've asked a hard thing. Testimony always costs. Always. But Elisha eagerly wants that. He says, well, here's the condition. If you see me. You see, there's always conditions on spiritual power. Always. We, we are in a society and a day where everything comes quickly. We think that spiritual power will do that too. I have a gospel message to prepare for. Uh, let me just, uh, I'll look up something on the computer. I'll do this. I'll do this. It comes real quick. You think spirituality comes very quickly? Testimony comes quickly? He says, here's the condition. There's always a condition. And he says, if you see me. Now listen, don't look around. Don't look to the sons of the prophets. Look to me. If you see me. You know what he was telling him? That his successor must depend on his ability to see and comprehend the spiritual world if he's going to follow. You get that? His successor must depend on his ability to see and comprehend the spiritual world. Men who can comprehend the natural world are everywhere. The spiritual world takes a spiritual man. Someone who's looking for that. What are you looking for? And so, Elisha, with his eyes riveted, keeps, him, keeps his eyes on his master. The whirlwind takes him up. The chariot comes. I think that's very significant that his master and Elisha will be characterized by the same way in 2 Kings chapter 13 by Joash the king as Elisha dies. And he says, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And so he is characterizing and labeling Elisha in the same way. You know why I think it's interesting that the chariot 
The chariot? Because the chariot was one of the greatest weapons of war in those days, whether it was the Bronze Age or the Iron Age or whatever. But I think what is very interesting that when you go to the book of Judges, one of the things that prevented the nation from entering into the inheritance were those that had chariots. Now they're seeing one, a chariot from above, greater than any chariot. He says he, he is seeing someone now who has laid hold of the truth of the inheritance and nothing is going to stop him. Says he now, well, my time is gone, but I'll just, says he rends his garment. Rends his garment. He wasn't happy to see him go. There's responsibility now. He's alone. No parents, no farm, no family, no oxen, no Elijah. But thank God, there's still God. There's still the Lord. And it says, he stooped down to pick up that mantle. You know, for a split second, he had to decide. There was still a decision. Am I going to pick it up or not? There it is. It's going to take a decision. Every one of us are going to make decisions every day. Am I going to pick this up? Am I going to take this on? And he rolled it up. And he smote the waters. And it's interesting that the LXX, which is the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that suggests that there was a slight delay in the moment that he smote the waters, perhaps prompting this question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He smites the waters. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And the waters part. You know what I think is very significant? The last... Listen, we're talking about con continuity of testimony, sameness, maintaining the same truth, not changing, not veering. The last miracle that Elijah does is the first miracle that Elisha does. There's a sameness, a continuity, a continuation. Smote the waters. He put on that mantle. It possibly could have even been made of a skin. You know, that mantle would have been the most visible garment that they would have seen, people of his day would have seen. Where would he put it on? Well, he'd put it on in his home, wouldn't he? Where would he wear it? Outside. That shows the private and the public aspects of testimony. He had to put it on in private, and he wore it in public. The continuation of testimony. Well, Elisha did at least twice as many miracles as Elijah. Do you know what else is interesting? Elisha is the only man, the only man that works a miracle from beyond the grave. And when the bones of that man, you remember, when that man, rather, was cast into the sepulcher of Elisha and touched the, bone, touched the bones of Elisha the prophet, he came to life. You know what that tells me? The influences of good men, men that are concerned about the testimony, can outlive them. The days of Joshua were outlived, right? By the elders who outlived him. God help us to lay hold upon this. To, to seek, thus saith the Lord, to hold tenaciously to the truth of God and not, not seek to change because you better come up with a better mantle if you're going to do that. And there is none better than the mantle of Elijah in this case. And there is none better. In fact, there's none other, really, when it comes to obedience to the Word of God than following what God says.